Have you ever done one of those escape rooms with your friends? I feel like every room I'm in is an escape room. I've had this feeling for as long as I can remember. I don't know when or how this all began, and I don't think it's due to the people who have been in rooms with me throughout my life. I often find myself with very kind and generous people, many of whom care about me. But that feeling of belonging in any space eludes me. I'm always looking for the way out. I've never been able to put words to these feelings. I shouldn't be speaking in the past tense because it's something I am still grappling with, this feeling of being outside of everybody I am around. The feeling often manifests itself with a great deal of anxiety. It has resulted, it results in me avoiding gatherings whenever possible. Over the years, I thought I was able to sort of diagnose each scenario to figure out what it was that caused me consternation. The group is too big and I'm just introverted. I don't have anything great going on in my life, so nothing to talk about. I'm less successful than the people at the party and feel embarrassed or ashamed. The Rolodex of excuses spins in my brain whenever I'm invited to a thing. And when I do find myself in these settings, I am constantly scanning the room for a conversational entry point and reading faces to see if I can discern where others might be relative to my own discomfort. This has been going on so long, I have learned to mask it and perform when called to. But it's exhausting. And it makes me feel pretty terrible about myself. Like, I am incapable of being part of society because I struggle to find my sliver in it. Theater often seems like a safe space, but even in that context, I feel like an alien. I'm a good writer, but what I am moved to write simply isn't that interesting to theater folks. I have tried to write those plays, but I just can't get my heart into them. I need to write what I need to write. And now I'm caught in this loop of, is it me or is it the writing? I know I'm just who I am and there's nothing to be done about that. But if there was a pill that made parties, holidays, or other social gatherings easy, I would keep one in my pocket. Or if there was a Grammarly program I could run a playthrough to make it more broadly interesting. I don't know. I'd think about it. Maybe. Maybe I'm just an incredibly niche person or maybe I'm just like everybody else. What is fascinating me at the moment is everything I'm learning about myself at this particular age. My understanding of my intellectual capabilities and differences is evolving and I'm beginning to realize my understanding will never stop evolving. I'll be on my deathbed having moments of clarity while I relive every past experience. I know how I am isn't so unique or special and that everybody around me has a rich inner life and perhaps everybody is better skilled at crafting their own masks to hide what is underneath. My superpower is that I lack that superpower and have to talk about it to continue my evolution. So there, I talked about it.
Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month on the Subtext, I speak with the great Jonathan Spector. I was really psyched to talk to Jonathan because we've been messaging back and forth for like a couple of years now, which is why I asked the first question that I asked him in this conversation. It took a while to get this going because I kept waiting for a chance to talk to him in person, but our respective geographies just wouldn't cooperate. So here we are. Jonathan Spector is a playwright and screenwriter based in Oakland, California. His plays include Eureka Day and This Much I Know, both of which are excellent. His work has been produced across the country and abroad at theaters, including The Old Vic, Aurora Theater, Colt Kerr, Mosaic Theater, Isolo Rep, Syracuse Stage Interact, and many others. He's won numerous awards and has been a New York Times critic's pick and on best of year lists in Time Out New York, San Francisco Chronicle, The Spectator Magazine, London's iNews, and the San Jose Mercury News, among others. That's not everything you need to know, but it's enough to prime you for this excellent conversation, which was recorded over Zoom with a lot of technical difficulties. I did my best to edit around them, but you'll hear some challenges here and there. Anyway, this is me and Jonathan Spector from back in April 2023. Like, I think, I think you're uh, the playwright I've spoken to most without having met before, <laughs> before doing one of these things. Uh, well, you know, it's because I'm such a super fan of yours, this <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, I mean, as you probably know, because I reach out after like every episode to tell you how much I love it, that I, I just feel like you are doing such a like service to the community. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I always, uh, when I, because I don't message people a lot on Twitter, you're like one of my regular message buddies on, on the Twitter. And so when a message pops up, if it was the, like the day or the day after a episode drops and I see a message, I'm like, this is, this is Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. Nine times out of ten, it is, and I always and I always appreciate it. Okay. Uh, do do people call you John, or you go by Jonathan? Uh, Jonathan. Mostly. Yeah. I I I went by John when I was younger, or I'm sort of Jonathan as a kid, and then I don't know, middle school or something, went to John, and then uh, yeah, I don't know, after college at some point, switched back to Jonathan. So yeah, so it's the thing where. You know, you have different people from different parts of your life that that use different names, which is fine, except that when they are in the same place is confusing for everybody. All right, Jonathan, uh, I have I don't I often don't come prepped with uh, uh, a question I want to start with. Uh, uh, but this might be the only thing we talk about for the next hour. <laughs> why? Why? Jonathan Spector. Do you hate writing? I mean, I, I, I think it's maybe a, a bit of hyperbole to say that I hate writing because I, of course, love it or I wouldn't do it. But I hate, um, I think the thing I hate, I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting moment for this because my um, 
this week, my new son, who's about four and a half months old, just started Nanny Share. Um, and so I, for the first time in a very long while, have some amount of space, sort of writing space back. And it really this week, just sort of trying to like find my way back into that like generative space that I haven't been in a really long time. And I think the thing I hate is that um, the period of time when you're trying to get um, get the wheels turning mm -hmm. and and the way I I think the way I think about it and it's one of those things where like I don't know if everybody has this or this is just the way my weird brain works is um, that there's like some indeterminate period of time in which I have to like put conscious attention on a project um, before my like subconscious or unconscious will like click on and start thinking about it as well. Mm -hmm. And it, until that happens, like nothing good is going to come and it's just <laughs> going to be sort of garbage and, and painful, but that the only way to get there is, is to just sort of force myself to, to do it. Um, and then at a certain point, like the, you know, that will happen. And then you're, you're sort of thinking about it when you're in the shower and when you're in the driving in your car and in the grocery store and like that's when the good ideas are are coming but you can't i don't know that period until that part of your brain like turns on is so painful because you know you're like not accessing like the good stuff and and it's just uh and it's just so uh so hard to know the thing that you're doing is not uh I know it just doesn't feel good, but of course there's no way to get to the good thing without going through the, the bad thing first. You need, you need, you need to access the, the, the dopamine rush. Right. <laughs> um, and then it's like, then, then there's a period when it's still like hard, but at least you're like, um, sometimes feel like you're making, at least have moments of, of feeling like, okay, I, you know, something is clicking into place or I, I can see, but also I think I don't, I mean, on some level, I think everything is terrible until I, I mean, really until I hear it out loud with like people reading it, with actors reading it for the first time. I just love, I just love every part of the process so much that when you uh, mentioned this to me in one of our, our, our messages back and forth, uh, one, it blew my mind, but then I realized I might be the exception to the rule. Uh, and I was just like, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going we're <laughs> well, to. <laughs> I mean, I think you're not the only one, but I do feel like there are like broadly like two categories of writers, like yeah. people who can just sit down and write every day if they have the space and time and, and, and find that pleasurable and people for whom, you know, the thought of writing is kind of like agony. Um, but and you sort of force yourself to do it anyway because you know that at at a certain point it won't be agony and certainly like if you on on the other side of it that it it, it feels really good you having know, written it feels I, good. I mean I I I understand the 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 feeling of agony sometimes uh and I wonder if if you if it has been different depending on the context around the thing you're you're working on for example uh, is your feeling different to write something that is your own sort of generative idea versus something you might have been assigned or commissioned to do? 
like it is it different um i mean i've never been commissioned with an assignment i think every commission is you know has always has either been you know what do you want to write about or me pitching an idea for something mm -hmm. um i mean i do feel like the exception to the the suffering and it's is um if there is a you know if i'm if i'm in a process like if i'm doing a workshop if i'm in rehearsal for a production like i don't have any of that resistance to being able to just in the three hours i have to do work between one day of rehearsal and the next to just like sitting down and, and getting into it and you know i'm sure there are some deep psychological reasons why that is why I don't suffer from that same avoidance, you know, in those circumstances. But I think part of it is you're you're feeding off the energy of everybody else, like in in the room, and and um, and also, of course, the other way past it is a uh, having a deadline, in which you know there's some uh, some great like comic, you know, had this like procrastination monkey that would sort of always like distract you, and that that at the end it was like the monster who was like the fear of like letting people down or, or missing the deadline or whatever would, would come off and like scare away the procrastination monkey. And then you were like left alone with mm -hmm. that's when you could finally uh, <laughs> do the work. And I think there's some, some wisdom in that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, what I, what I remember learning about you uh, a while back was that you initially were a theater director. Did I get, do I have that right? Yes. I started off in, you know, I mean, in college, I did a bunch of theater, but I went, you know, I went to a school um, that up until a few months ago, nobody had ever heard of and is now in, in the news a lot, a lot for the very unfortunate reason that it's the subject of a fascist takeover by Ron DeSantis. Um, it's the school called New College of Florida. Uh, that It's very small public liberal arts college and, and had no, when I was there, there were 600 students. Um, and it didn't have a theater program, but you know, we, there were a lot of sort of students and I didn't, I feel like I've heard you say something similar that like, I don't think at the time that like people writing plays in the present moment was really something I yeah. was aware of. Like I didn't, I didn't know any playwrights. I didn't see any new plays. And um, whereas like directing felt like something I could, I could do, even though I, I think from a kind of a young age, I always thought of myself as a writer and, and thought I would be, but somehow, uh that kind of got pushed aside and so then i i directed a bunch of plays in college just because it's sort of what i could do and then i don't know, decided that i should be a director although I, I think in retrospect in some ways it was like the writer in me that wanted to be a director it was like the appeal of directing was very much like here is a piece of writing that just like i i love so much and so like directing is a way to get to be really like intimate with a piece of writing and then like and share it with other people what was the writing that was inspiring you back then i don't know i mean the first play i directed was um jean genet's the maids mm -hmm. uh which just like completely blew my mind when i read it um i mean i had very little like sort of theatrical education um and I had seen a production of that a friend of mine uh, had done when I was in high school and he was in college of um, Who's Fair Virginia Wolf that had like also just completely, you know, like 
most like transcendent theatrical experiences, even though it was, it, I'm sure if I went back and watched that production, it'd be like, oh, this is a bunch of like 19 year olds doing, you know, doing Hershey Wolf. But at, at the time, having no sense of what that play is or where it was going or, or, or what this was. That's so funny because I, I, I mean, I love, I love Virginia Woolf and I, I did not encounter Virginia Woolf until I was in my 30s. So, you know, not the age of George and Martha, uh, but still old enough and with enough life experience to understand, you know, relationship dynamics and all of that. <laughs> I, I wonder how I would have responded to that play as a younger person, you know, if I would have found the same kind of like on inspiration artistically and also this sort of like gut punch of it, would I have felt that? I mean, I definitely felt that gut punch. I'm, I'm sure there was so much of it that I didn't didn't understand or, or I mean, thought I understood, but didn't mm -hmm. understand like mm -hmm. the, the depth of it, um, not having the life experience <laughs> to really get there. Yeah, and actually, I mean, he was, Albie was probably like 30, 32 or yeah. something when when he wrote it. So, so um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, now that I think of it, I, I don't remember the, the, um, when this series of things happened, but I, 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 reflecting on it, I, I wondered if, I think one of the things that prevented me for a very long time from writing plays is I, because I was a bit obsessed with Virginia Wolf and I read a bunch of interviews with Edward Albee and I remember him talking about how he would, the way he wrote, like both Zeus story and Virginia Woolf, I don't know about the, uh, the later plays, was he would just sort of like walk around for a long time with the play in his head and had basically written the entire play in his head and then just like sat down and in three weeks, like typed it all, typed out Zeus story or like five weeks Virginia Woolf. And I, and I still feel this way, like my brain doesn't, doesn't work like that. I can't um, have an entire play worked out in my mind before I start writing. I really am a sort of muddle my way through it kind of writer. Uh, you know, uh, I, sometimes like sort of midway through, I will I will stop and be like, okay, maybe I should have some kind of outline about where we're heading. Um, but I, you know, in the way that sometimes you do when you're like 18 or 19, you're like, oh, well, I guess this must just be the way it is. And I guess like mm -hmm. my mind doesn't work the way you need to, to be able to write a play, which is that you can sort of have it all worked out before you start writing. Uh, and as with like most things that we tell ourselves or think are like the way it has to be, like it's not true universally. Right, right. What, what, what does your brain need to have in order to give you permission to start? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's probably different with every play, but some, I mean, I always had, you know, there like, the, is it, is it, a thing that I'm interested in exploring and the, the past several plays I've written have all involved some kind of research um, that in very, I mean, the thing that I'm really intend to write very soon, I've been researching for like two years, um, but, but even before that, you know, I, I, I often would be, you know, interviews or, or just some kind of thing that I'm drawing on um and then i mean really the thing that gets one started writing 
oh, it gets me started right now. <laughs> it's like a deadline. I mean, which can even be, can, can just be a writer's group or something or some, some expectation that like, okay, I'm, I have to show up with something. And so I'm going to get over myself and just, you know, write, write something and let it be, let it be terrible. Are you, are you able to share work in progress with like a writer's group? I, I am. I, so when I, after college, I was in New York um, for a couple of years and, you know, trying without much success to be a director. So when I was first in New York, I had been a, a director in the Soho Rep Writer Director Lab, which it, at, at that time had a model of, you know, it was like every couple of weeks people would meet and playwrights would bring in pages, you know, increasing amounts of pages from the play. Um, and so I think I had that sort of in my head and, and, and many years later when I started writing, I was in California and I had a, my wife and I had a theater company they were running and we sort of started a, you know, sort of writing lab using that model. And so I, that sort of kind of, that's how I started writing plays was in that way of, okay, I'm going to bring in 20 pages in two weeks and then I will have more pages the next time. And so I got very, very used to that way of, of, working which i think was really great for me to just get started writing um and there's such benefit to that but i i, I also feel like at this point th that kind of that way of working invites at least for me where you like when the deadline is approaching do a bunch of work and write 20 or 25 pages and then do nothing until like a few days before the next deadline three weeks later and i i think that is not a great way at least for me to write a first draft like you want really to have a to be able to hang on to the impulse yeah and, and get to the end in an ideal world although i mean the past two plays i've written did not do that at all like in one case i had written like 15 pages and didn't come back to it for like a year so I mean, speaking of like things we tell ourselves that aren't true, I think like, you know, every, every play is a little different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked that question about generating, hearing other people talk about your work while you're generating the work is a super struggle of mine. Like mm -hmm. I'll, I can talk about an idea for a play and hear other people, you know, riff on it, talk about it. But as soon as I start putting words on a page, I kind of need to be locked down from outside voices and influences until I've gotten that first draft done. Like I need to get everything I've thought of out first. I need to solve all the problems on my own. And then I'm, and then I'm again, open again to hear whatever anybody has to say. But I, so I, this was a struggle for me in, in every writer's group I've been in and yeah. In grad school, it was it was really tough because that's the whole structure of grad school is you're writing a piece, you know, week after week after week and you're bringing in the next few pages. And I kind of had to just turn it off during those three years of grad school and kind of nod along and listen and take notes to what everybody was saying while still just staying firm to my own creative <laughs> impulse to get to the end of the piece people are people are saying things and you're just like writing down peas and carrots peas and carrots yeah peas and carrots. yeah it's like i want yeah. my sh like i want to take my shot first before you solve yeah. a problem that is might be might not even be a problem in the in the I, 10 I mean, pages i i i think for me it's less useful what anyone has to say at that stage than it is just hearing the words spoken out loud by other voices even mm -hmm. fairly early on i 
uh, I don't know, bring for, for me, like brings a certain life to the thing I'm working on that then when I go back to it, it, it feels more three dimensional or, or robust or something that that gives me, I don't know, energy, energy to keep going. But mm -hmm. I but I agree with you. Like there's I mean, it's the other reason that I don't love that model anymore is I just don't believe that there is much you can say to somebody about the first 20 pages of their play besides it's great keep going that is like of yeah, many years, yeah. really but um yeah. yeah yet we're often called to submit the first 20 pages of our play for for judgment <laughs> uh you said before that uh you I, maybe I'm putting the words into your mouth, but you, when you started off directing plays, you, you were perhaps deep down already a writer. Mm -hmm. And this was your access point was directing. Uh, so what, how did the act, how did the actual writing start to emerge from that? I mean, it took, it, it took a very long time. Um, I, so I was in New York for several years thinking I was a director and directing what I could, although really had no idea like how to do anything, how to go about anything or like make anything happen. Um, and uh, and then ended up moving to California and in part like following uh, the woman who's now my wife. So that, that worked out uh, who's from <laughs> here. Uh, and we, who I had met in the Lincoln Center Director's Lab. Uh, and I got here and pretty quickly uh, started working for um, Playwrights Foundation, who were the, you know, who run the Barry Playwrights Festival and became the, um, the literary manager and, and sort of took on more and more responsibility over time um, and did that for, I don't know, several years. And then all, simultaneously, my, my wife and I were running this theater company, which he had started. Um, so I was very oriented, I mean, it was very, like, deep, you know, like, arms deep in new plays and, and the new play world, but I was still not yet um, writing and, and it, if anything, like, ever more intimidated about doing my own writing as I was, like, um, and wasn't really thinking about it. I was just so excited about about all of these writers and, and the opportunity to, I mean, to encounter new writers and, like, offer them opportunities and support them and that was I mean the you know like the first year that I was the literary manager for the Barry Flores Festival like in that festival you know people who just sort of came up through the pile it was like Annie Baker and Sam Hunter and and Christopher Chen and, and like none of whom had ever had a play produced at that point you know and the, the, like that excitement of, of discovering just amazing even at that stage in the career obviously amazing writers was so thrilling um and it was only once I left that job that I started I you know I had sort of done a couple things like I had worked on a devised project with some people where I'd done some writing some of my own writing contributing to it and and that was really you know I, I remember really enjoying that and um so it was kind of like dipping my toe into it a little bit at, as I was trying to figure out, you know, what the hell to do with my life. Um, and, uh, but it was that thing where in retrospect, like the universe is sending you a lot of signals. Like I had um, 
around that time that I left that job, I, I applied to directing grad school, um, and which I had done in my early 20s and, and not gotten in. And then I, and the place that I ended up getting into, uh, the whatever the final directing audition was like, a, you directed a piece you want, they gave you and, and something you brought. And the thing I brought was like something I had something I had written for that devised piece. Mm -hmm. And when they offered me a spot in the directing program, the woman who called me told me the reason they offered me a spot is because they liked that piece so much. You know, <laughs> so it was really even then it was my writing and not my directing, which had gotten me into the directing program, which I didn't go to because it wasn't funded. And I was like, I actually don't like directing enough to want to <laughs> go into just enormous amounts of debt. Um, so that was I guess. so. So were you always thinking uh, my life is going to be the theater? I don't. I mean, not, not always. I don't, I mean, I definitely, when I finished college, I had done a lot of theater and liked theater and thought this is something that I want to do, but I didn't, I think I had so little conception of what that meant or what that looked like. Um, and I think like a lot of people in the early twenties, like just, was not like like long-term thinking was not really like my my forte yeah <laughs> so right I, I don't know i mean i i knew that it was like that i enjoyed it and i and i liked being in rehearsal rooms and i wanted to keep doing that and i i think probably had wildly unrealistic expectations of how one could you know do that as a job how, how easy it would be to, to do that for your job um and yeah i think that's sort of as far ahead as i was thinking at the time hmm. did you do you have like the type of family that is is has tried to influence your career choices i mean yes it yes and no i mean they were i you know i don't have anyone in my family who are artists but and so i didn't grow up with that but my my father's an academic he's a history professor um uh, and so to the degree that they would try and influence my choices, it was always like, oh, if you're going to do theater, you know, you should go to grad school so that you can teach. You know? mm -hmm. like that was the like the thing they were, they were sort of pushing um, to the degree they were pushing me to do anything. But, but I think we're very, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure they had a lot of anxiety about what I was doing with my life for a long time, but, but mostly, uh, you know, kept it subdued so how was it if you if your family wasn't particularly uh artistically inclined how was it that you found yourself to being artistic yourself i don't know i mean i think it was probably through um literature and and i mean they may you know there's certainly like a family that was always reading a lot um and where that was a uh like i had i had um i don't know if this is ever spoken out loud but i had certainly like inculcated the idea from a young age that if you're reading you're not wasting your time hmm. um and so that is you know something i i did a lot of and it was very connected to to literature and in high school started you know getting really into um you know literature as as art and and was sort of doing my own writing um so yeah i don't I don't know. 
I, and I think I did have this idea as a younger person that I would be a writer. I think, you know, when I was like 12, like read all of the Stephen King books and, you know, he has so many characters who are writers. And so I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, this feels, this feels right somehow. But I, I, so I find it curious that when you went to the University of Ron DeSantis, uh... oh God, no... <laughs> it's, it's a very, I mean, it's very, I'm sorry, so heartbreaking what's happening there right now. I mean, all yeah, uh, are... I don't mean to make light of it. Yes. No, no. It's... <laughs> um, so when you went, when you went to school, that it was theater that you started I, doing. Yes, but only, I mean, I just sort of like bumbled into it. You know, they didn't have a theater program, but I just sort of ended up doing plays. Um, yeah. And then sort of got, got more into that as, as time went on and um, had did like a studied abroad in, in Ireland and, and studied theater there. Um, and yeah, I just increasingly kind of became where my attention was. Do you ever think, do you ever think that what, how do I ask this? I've never really asked this of anybody before. Um, what is it about you that made theater the thing that fulfilled you or or pulled you in? I I don't know. Um, I and it, it's it's weird, particularly in in light of that it took me so long to to begin writing. But I almost feel like it was the writing more than the theater and it, that it's that theater is a place where, um, where writing is, is held so wholly, at least in the American theater. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously there's non-text-based theater, which can be wonderful. Um, so I think it, it's something about that and something about the way you get to, like, if you're working on a play, just like, like the, um, the care and the attention, you know, that, that goes into thinking about the writing and, and um, from, you know, this, this from a huge group of artists all like working collaboratively on it around trying to bring this thing to life. It's just like a really special thing. I mean, I don't know how um, novelists, you know, how they do it, just the mm -hmm. sort of loneliness of it. It was just you by yourself day after day <laughs> mm -hmm. without without other people. You know, I think that that certainly for me, like that toggle between like the introversion of getting to be by yourself and writing and the the sort of extroversion of getting to be with other people is the you know, is the best part about being a playwright. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I love that uh the two sides of it. And uh, that's certainly a big reason why I'm engaged in this, because I think throughout my life, I've always needed that kind of balance. I've always needed to be part of something, but I am uh, an introvert. So I do need to be on my own thinking in my head and devising in my head and then sharing. And so the, like, my life at its best has that kind of balance.
Right. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was so hard about the, I mean, uh, I mean, there are many things, but one of the things that was so hard about the early period of COVID is it's like the, the, the toggle that you're, you're, only, mm -hmm. you're only left with the introversion <laughs> and there's, so, and, and what made it feel so um, impossible, I think for myself and I've like many people took to write in those, in those early days was like, well, what, what is on the other end of this? I know. Yeah. I mean, we're what it's April 23 now. So, you know, three years ago, three years ago, we were still in the early throes of it where we thought, okay, now maybe just by the end of May. Right. <laughs> so I, re I remember that first part of it, just thinking how temporary this all was. Uh, so I didn't feel, I didn't feel so impacted by it until probably the summer like june july when the realization came that this is open ended mm -hmm. that this isn't a th that we're not now looking at just maybe the next month like that thinking is over this is over who knows when and that's when it cr started to crush me a little bit yeah and had we known then i mean none of us psychologically been able to make it. I right. really understood at the beginning what it was going to entail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to go back to what you were talking about with regards to uh, grad school. So you apply to you apply to a directing program and you get in. Uh, is this the light bulb moment for writing where you're like, wait, directing, maybe not. I'm not going to invest in it. Somebody said something nice about what I wrote, maybe I should write. I mean, I think, I mean, no, it was maybe one of many light bulb moments that I needed because, and, and I, and it's of course hard to reconstruct what you're thinking at the time, but I know it wasn't because I know I like had a pretty big, like, you know, one, one third life crisis or something at the time mm -hmm. and like a, applied the next year to law school. Uh, oh wow and uh because i which i had like stumbled into in like a pretty dumb way of just my i was like i i needed a new it's like i'm almost 30 i i need a some way to make some money i don't have any skills like i and my brother <laughs> you know who was a lawyer convinced me that i got in a pretty good sat score and he was like you're a good test taker if you get a really good score in the LSAT, you can make a lot of money like teaching LSAT classes. And so I was like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll do it. You know, And like, I, I think I got a decent score in the LSAT, but I, and then I was like, all right, I guess I might as well just apply to law school. What am I getting, you know, they can, because it, it, it's, it did and still does seem like law school would be interesting. I just think I have no interest actually being a lawyer. Um, so I did that. And then at the last minute, that same year, I guess I had started writing more, uh, maybe in my in my writers group, and maybe with by then with this sort of local group that where people write ten minute plays, and they put them up, you know, once a month. Um, because at the last minute, I also applied to this one MFA creative writing program that that's based in the Bay Area, San Francisco State. That's very cheap, and it, it, it's very much like a part time program for most people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't even have a full length play. Like I applied with two, you know, short things. Cause I, um, and I got into the, I got into some law schools and I got into that program and I, you know, decided to do that instead, but it was very, 
you know, even at the time, I think I was less thinking like, okay, now I will be a playwright than I was thinking like, okay, well, you know, this can be like, this will be like one more thing that I am doing and can get the MFA and I can teach and I will write a little more. And I was, you know, we were still had our theater company at the time and I was, you know, still directing them. So I was like, I, I, I just kind of expand my like basket of things that I'm, I'm doing, you know, um, and then I went to that program, which is not, um, I mean, I, I really uh, like the people that the people who teach there, but the, the, the playwriting program is in the creative writing department. And it's really the kind of like redheaded stepchild of the creative writing department. And it, it's, you know, it was not, uh, I think it, it was not the grad school experience that I think many people do have in, in as I talked to other friends who, who went mm -hmm. to other kinds of grad schools and, but what it did do was like, just give me the space to like, begin to think about myself as, as a writer um, and to, to do some writing. And so that ended up being, um, being useful and, and, and I guess transformative ultimately. Did you learn anything? I mean, I think I learned some things about teaching and I think I, I think I, uh i almost feel like i because it was in the creative writing department and the structure of the program you had to take some classes in other genres mm -hmm. um, and i almost feel like i learned as much or more in those classes even though i don't you know beyond those classes i don't write in those you know fiction or, or poetry um but i don't know i mean i i would say i i learned way more in the years that i was you know, helping to run the Barry Players Festival, just mm -hmm. in, in terms of getting to read so many plays, getting to meet so many writers, getting to watch how they worked and talk to them. And, and um, like that was much more of a, a know, transformative kind of educational time then, even though I wasn't like at all consciously thinking, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm, I'm a writer at the time. Yeah, I'm, my experience working at a theater, a new play theater, you know, before, during, and after grad school was like a huge supplementary education where I was like, like you're just describing, I was watching playwrights come in, work on a brand new play, see that play realized for the first time. Uh, and, you know, one after another, and then watch the whole soup to nuts mm -hmm. process of, of play production while I'm figuring out how to write a play of my own. Uh, it was, it was a huge, huge help to me in, in developing myself as a as a as a playwright and a theater person in general. I think, I mean, I think it's it's such a double edged sword, though, or it was at least for me because I found it very hard to when I started writing myself. Just you know, I had spent so much time reading and evaluating plays, and to sort of shut off the part of my brain that is like thinking, okay, if this is a submission that I am reading, how am I gonna be thinking about it? And and to be overly critical too early. Um, oh yeah. <clears throat> uh, I mean, which is not to say that there isn't a benefit in also thinking about how somebody else is gonna receive a play when they are cracking it open for the first time. And how, mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it's tricky. Sure. How how many of my plays do you remember rejecting from the Bay Area <laughs> Playwrights Festival? 
<laughs> I don't, you know, I don't, do you, I mean, were you applying to the Bay Area Festival between the years of 2007 and 11 or, or something? A couple, a couple of those years I was, I was in there. Just, let me, I didn't, let me, I didn't, let me, I didn't read, every, I didn't read every play myself, though I didn't read, you know, probably at least a third of them. So let me say, so. I'll, I'll just say that uh, in those years, anything I would have submitted would justifiably be <laughs> rejected. You know, when you write, you know, like you, if you talk, if you think about the body of work that you've done, you, you, you count how many plays you've written. And I don't know how, what that number is. I know the number that exists that I will uh, admit to. I have maybe like 12 plays and I've probably written 20. Like mm -hmm. there's a, there's a bunch in there where if anybody remembered reading it, I would be humiliated by its existence. <laughs> right. It is that it is a, a like a oddly, it, I, I don't know that it feels like a breakup exactly, but it is quite emotional. Like the moment when you're like, I'm going to take this play off my resume. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take like this play is going out of circulation. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have plays like that? I sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the first, first couple plays. Okay. So, uh, talk, Talk to me about that. So are you, right now, are you, do you consider yourself uh, a, a director and a playwright? Oh, no, not at all. I haven't, I mean, I haven't directed anything in, in uh, I mean, really when I actually, when I started, I think my first semester in grad school, I directed a play and that was the last production that I've directed. So it was many, I mean, a decade ago at this point. Um, and then I even directed some like readings and things after that, but but I haven't yeah. done anything at all in a, in a very long time and and have no desire to. And I think as I've had the opportunity to work with um, some really amazing directors, uh, just really reinforces how much I, <laughs> I am not a director and don't want to be a director. Was that an intentional choice back then? You're like, I'm putting this behind me, I'm burying this part of myself and moving on? Uh, I don't know if it was, I, I don't think it was like one day I've decided to close this door forever as much as it's just like not as, it's that that what I realized is like the, um, the juice you get from like being in a room where people are reading your, the thing you've written is at least for me, it's like a hundred times more than whatever I would get from you know, running a rehearsal for a play that I was directing from from somebody else that, that somebody else had written, um, mm -hmm. and so then I was sort of hooked once I once I realized that. So talk about those early plays. Like what what were you what were you motivated to write back then? Like what was getting you? What was inspiring you? Um. And I don't know. I mean, I think the early plays, I think I had much less of a, I think that one thing, I don't know if I have become a better writer over the past however many years, but I think the thing I have gotten better at is um, like honing my sense of like what might be a play. Mm. Of, like when I, when I encounter something or I read something or I, have an experience and like, oh, maybe there's a play here. Um, and I think 
the first Coldplay is like didn't come from that necessarily. Maybe one of them did, which is maybe the best of, sort of the early plays I wrote of like, oh, there's something that I don't understand or I'm really curious about or like feels like it it has the the like thickness that I can kind of um, dive into it and, and it, you know in in the way that it, that could make a good play. Yeah. So was there a moment when you had, where you, you, you started to think, oh yeah, this is something I really, I really can do. Did you have anybody that was sort of helping you along or, or like motivating you or, or saying, Jonathan, you're, you're on the right track. Um, I, I, I do think I, fairly early on was getting more positive feedback about writing than I really ever had about directing. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I mean, I didn't know that, um, so I, I, I think I thought it was um, something that was worth continuing with. I guess, and that I that I was enjoying, and and one of my, I guess I, I you know I wrote a play, my first full length play, and then I, um, and sort of set it aside, and then my and, and second full length play, which in retrospect I realized is essentially was essentially rewriting the first play, <laughs> that, that I didn't I didn't know that, and it, but the the sort of structure of it and the the character archetypes were the same, even if the story was different, mm -hmm. uh, which I have now seen as as I've taught like that that is is not a totally unique thing that people do with their when they first start writing yeah um but the the second iteration of it um which was the first thing that i really shared with anybody in a real way you know got a bunch of you know some sort of positive signals from the universe like it was a finalist for the o'neill and for whatever some other things and was selected for reading so it you know it, it i um that was sort of early encouragement to kind of keep, you know, keep mm -hmm. going, I guess. So uh, uh, did you have a play that, I mean, I kind of know, I know the answer to this, um, but I'm curious what you would say <laughs> the answer is. Like, is there a play that kind of uh, took your career to the next level? Yeah, I mean, it, definitely the the... Um, this play that I wrote in, um, premiered in 2018, I had written it, you know, the year before, um, called Eureka Day, which was done, was a commission from Aurora Theater here in, in Berkeley, um, and premiered there, and then, uh, in really, I mean, really sort of changed my life, uh, in that it, it was very, very successful here in Berkeley. And then, you know, that play got me an agent and got me, um, sort of began to open up the rest of the theater world to me. And then it had a, a small, um, but very, very successful production in New York uh, in the fall of 2019. So just before mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. COVID hit, but it was like, a, um, I mean, it, it, you know, the in some ways, like like the fairy tale version of what 
can happen when you have a, a small play in New York that there's what makes New York, New York unique in some ways because this can't really happen anywhere else but that like you know Ben Brantley comes from the New York Times and gives it this big rave and all of these you know suddenly there is like a lot of interest and a lot of conversations about the future of the play and conversations with producers and and uh, uh, yeah and then it sort of you know let, let continue to to lead to other things um, and has uh yeah continue to kind of be a big part of my life since then so at that time what like where was your headspace uh at which point so like in new york like you had the big we i mean it must have been an amazing feeling in the in your hometown or the town where you live to have yeah. such a wonderful well-received production um New York being the capital of the theater world and then moving on to that and having, like you just said, Brantley come and give it a rave. Like, how was that impacting your sort of mindset about, about your, your life and your career? Oh yeah. I mean, it was completely surreal. Um, it definitely, yeah, it, it was, uh, um, I mean, it's sort of strange because then it was not that long until COVID hit, and so it, yeah, it, it didn't it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it was um, this feeling of having been involved with theater and involved with professional theater, but also always feeling kind of on the periphery of it. Mm -hmm. um, certainly of the industry, you know, uh, of professional theater, like this weird feeling that like, I've been like standing outside, the, like tapping on the glass for like mm -hmm. all these years and like nobody knows you're there. And then like suddenly like the door is just opened and you're like welcomed inside. <laughs> like, you know, I've been here the whole time. Um, yeah, so that was very strange. I remember my, my, my then agent, um, it was wonderful, uh, saying that like, you know it was like it was like somebody had flipped a switch and that she had been like picking up the phone and making outgoing calls like about this play for a year and then like suddenly now she was just fielding incoming calls all day and mm -hmm. like that it's like very strange moment um and it's this I don't, it's always hard to know how much of this is like your own neuroses and projection mm -hmm. versus like the reality. But it does, it, it did feel like that began like a pretty rapid shift in terms of having conversations with people at theaters and rather than, and feeling like you can be a peer rather than a supplicant. Mm. That, that you're not just like like please please bestow upon me you know the gift of your beneficence and maybe read a play of mine and and, and then send me a polite email nine months later saying that like sorry it's not for us right <laughs> but that you, you actually like they are engaging with you as like uh somebody who you know whether or not they're going to do your play or you want them to do your play is um part of the ecosystem that, that, that they operate in. Mm -hmm. So Eureka Day went on to have this production in 
London last year at the old Vic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about your experience with that? Yeah. So after the, after I happened in New York, there were, there was a lot of conversation with commercial producers and, and we ended up, um, have been then since then now for a very long time uh, working with this really amazing producer named, named Sonia Friedman, who's a British producer, um, and is kind of like the. I mean, she's yeah the the sort of biggest producer in the UK, I, I think, and and but also just like incredible supportive. Uh, uh, I mean, always yeah get. get each of the stages of conversations we've had now for three years about the play, it has always been about like, what's going to be best for the play? Like, how do we make it, you know, the most artistically successful version of it? Um, and so, you know, there were a bunch of different iterations of how it happened that COVID kept waylaying along the way. And so then then we ended up with um, having this opportunity to do it at the, at the Old Vic in, in the fall, um, which was, I mean, it was amazing, you know, it was like, and how we had this incredible cast and uh, team working on it and just, uh, again, totally surreal to be in this, you know, like temple of theater uh, mm-hmm. there in London. Uh, and was very, but also very strange to be doing this like very American play in uh, for, for British people. And there was definitely like a, um, uh you know some element of at least in the critical response to that production like i there was very different than the critical response had ever been to any of like it's had a number of productions in the u.s now like where i think people didn't quite like fundamentally like like some people didn't believe that like this is actually how people act in berkeley whereas like in when we first did it in berkeley like the response from both the critical response and the audience response was like, "Oh yes, this is this is exactly how how we are." Um, so that that was sort of interesting. That's and interesting. Still kind of like uh, I'm still kind of processing that, you know. And, and so and so the American audiences see see the American audience on stage, mm-hmm. essentially, whereas the Brits are looking at as like some cartoonish version of American yeah. life. I think so, and certainly not not universally, but like I think yeah. they, yeah, I think I did come away feeling like, oh, they, we probably understand them less than we think we do, and and they understand us less than they think they do. Um, uh, but it was, I mean, it was a, I mean, overall, a super wonderful experience, and uh, and just wild to be in a, I mean, you know, I I wrote that play for a theater, a hundred fifty seat theater. Mm-hmm. And so to to watch the play in a in a thousand seat theater is is um, just an incredible, strange experience. So and also I think there's a way in which like the play, um, I guess particularly because it was about a kind of you know hit on a number of sort of you know, things that are in the slipstream, there's this way in which, this weird way in which the play, there was some conversation about the play that you realized was actually had nothing to do with the play at, it's, at all, but was just like various people who are like, here is more evidence to support 
the the arguments I'm making about culture in X, Y, and Z way, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, in arguing with it one way or the other, but it's, it's actually like the, the conversation is totally removed from your play at that point. It just becomes this like fodder for, you know, the take industry or whatever. Right. Well, to not spoil the play at all for anybody there, it, it, it is fascinating to imagine it in uh, the audiences viewing it in the pre COVID world versus the post, well, the current COVID world or the pre-COVID vaccination world and and all of that entailed um, and how your play isn't about that, but is about that in a way. Or, you know, because you wrote it before any of this was even on our consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a way in which... Um, You know, uh, I've had several people be like, oh, yeah, COVID's really, really great for this play, you know, because now it's so topical. Um, I mean, which is a depressing way to think about things. But also, I think there is a way in which before COVID, because the topic of the play is, is vaccines, and that just like for most people in their lives was not as much of a... Um, like occupying all of their energy and so they were able to more I think see the play with really what the intention is behind it which is like using that to almost almost metaphorically to like think about how you create a how you like have a functional society and democracy when you can't agree on like baseline reality um and I almost feel like before COVID people in responding to the play were more able to see that that it was like about it was actually about something bigger but now because our relationship to vaccines and to vaccine skepticism and to all is so intense I, I i feel like it's a little bit harder for people to um to see that part of it and so if i if i get mm-hmm. one more crack at it you know that's that's something i'm i'm thinking about is how in this moment how to you know, help, help lift it there. So you were talking about how after the New York production, um, how that changed things a little bit and how your agent at the time was fielding a lot of calls uh, and it was very exciting. And, you know, a couple of years later, this London production happens. Uh, it's, it, it feels very much like um, a snow globe being shaken and, and it's wonderful, right? Because this it looks so beautiful and picturesque. And I'm wondering if you're still in the shaken snow globe, or if all of the snow has has settled. I think it's hard to say. In part, yeah. I mean, I think in part because of COVID and all that's come after, and this way in which, like, it doesn't feel like we. I mean, I guess we're approaching it, but have like ever really like found a new equilibrium or or like certainty in our lives and um and now i have this new baby and you know and, and so that's once again a sort of complete um rewiring of your i mean it's my I, it's my second child it's not as profound and trend you know i mean a change in everything as the your first child but um so i i yeah so i i it's maybe a long way of saying it's like things still feel very unsettled and and changing but but it's because i I think certainly for the theater industry, like, like that's where we are. Like we are not 
you know, the, the snow, the, the snow globe of theater is still very much like mm -hmm. heavily being shaken right now. Um, and so I, I, I think it's hard to feel like we've, um, like we've landed or like, or like I've, um, like I've landed, although, although I do, I mean, certainly feel like things are, are, um, different, but it's, I don't know if you feel this way. I mean, I just feel like the, the, the past three years, like my sense of ability to like hold on to the passage of time has been messed with so much of like what, what was one year ago and what was two years ago and what was three years ago and when did different things happen? I actually started to feel that when I moved from the East coast to the West coast, because I lost the anchor of seasons to help me mm -hmm. remember things and everything was the same season. So I started to measure the passing of time through the ages of my friend's children. Hmm. So, so-and-so was three when this happened or when we traveled here or that, or this, some, this person had that wedding or like all these things in my memory. Uh, I used to be able to specifically pinpoint when they happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, since, since the past three years, uh, you know, everything's been shaken. Right. And me personally, it's like, I've moved and I'm, and I'm probably moving again. So I'm, com I'm feeling completely. Do you know where you're, do you know where you're moving? Is it still up in the air? Totally up in the air. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, so like the world is unsettled. I'm personally feeling unsettled and it's a hundred percent impacting my ability to, to be creative, to, like the the podcast is the one thing the one constant that i've been able to maintain through all this because my writing has become incredibly sporadic and that is unsettling because i used to be such a disciplined daily writer right and i very much miss it so uh, i mean I, I, I will say the one thing in terms of like your snow globe question that, that think, i think has changed is the, the you know, I think that the dial has been turned down on the degree to which I feel like it, when you're in certain rooms with certain people, like I, you know, I really don't belong here. And I'm a total, I mean, the, the imposter syndrome, um, which I still feel, of course, like anytime I sit down at the computer mm -hmm. to write, but, but, um, you know, going from a place of feeling like, like, oh, they've really made a mistake. Like, I don't know who, who let me into this Zoom to, to at least <laughs> saying like, okay, well, I'm here. So I might as well just accept that I'm having this conversation and mm -hmm. we'll go forward from there. Yeah. It has, is there anything about the success of Eureka Day that has impacted the way you're approaching new plays to write or new, new anything to write? Like, have you been influenced by that that piece's success i i do think it's the you know it's the only play well actually my uh, i i have a play that is about to have a a second production and a, a, another play and um that'll have a, a production in london next year that so this the the first beyond Eureka day that'll be the first second production i've had of a play mm -hmm. um so i think there's something with like getting to see the, the shift from when you're doing a lot of development on a play and the process is really all about you. And I mean, if it's a good pro development process, you know, it's supporting what you need. And then like the first production of play, which, 
really should still be mostly about you as the playwright and like wanting to give you your vision. Mm -hmm. um, and that's mostly all I had done. So then getting to like begin to understand what it means for like a play to go out and have a life beyond you and like going out and seeing productions. Um, I think in, in a way that I'm still processing has changed the way I don't know that it, it, it's changing the way I'm like writing a first draft, but maybe changing the way I'm thinking about like when I'm done with the play and what I need to, um, where, where, where it needs to be, but also just feel like it's very, uh, in a, in a like ontological sense, I still don't quite understand what, what, what my relationship is to these productions of the play that I'm not involved with. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, uh, it's just a very strange thing because it I mean I've heard I've heard and I've, I've asked a lot of other writers how they feel about this and have heard like a, a lot of people say some version of like that those productions have nothing to do with me and like I just have to pretend wow. they don't um, and wow. I know other people who are like oh I you know they, they're like there for it and they love it and they want to see every production if they're invited mm -hmm. um and I don't know, I, and I don't know where I, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. Is what, it like a sense of, on that spectrum that I, that is I, it kind of like a sense oh. of protection and like, it's out in the world, it can be licensed. And if it sucks, I wasn't like, it's not me anymore. Is that the kind of like, is that what's underneath that response where it, I don't um, care? Yeah. Well, and also, and, and like, or maybe people will make choices that weren't what you intended, but are, but are, brilliant and wonderful um but that in some fundamental way like the only like there's the production of the play or productions of the play you know that you are a part of making and like those are your play and then the other ones are are something else those are like other people's mm. plays i think I and mean, that's sort of where i'm i'm getting to i mean i've definitely made the mistake and i will never do this again of um like showing up to previews at a production that you've had no involvement in mm. which is just the worst thing you can do because there's really nothing you can say at that stage that is going to be useful to anyone except you know it's amazing i love it great job mm -hmm. um because that you know you're only gonna fuck people up if like, yeah and you know and they're very intimidated by the playwright being there um and if you've gone for previews now if there are things you don't like or you know now you're stuck watching it you know three times but or even if there are things you you do like but you're like oh i wish we could you know this is so interesting what this person is doing i wish we could you know explore that more but you don't have time because now the play is going to open um and so it's uh you know like it's like you don't you don't belong there i think is what yeah I'm yeah i was i was talking to a a playwright recently who was having a first production ever of anything. And they have never really been part of theater productions in the past. So they're very new to the entire process. And the theater producing their play doesn't have a lot of money, very small theater, um, geographically far from where they live. And they, they were like, I can go once. I can afford to go to this once. Uh, so I'm thinking of going for tech and I was just like, I guess this depends on what your goal is. Tech's the worst time 
<laughs> you to be there. Like, because the words you just said, you don't belong there. The time the playwright belongs there the least is during tech. And, uh, and I was just like, I was like, I don't know. It depends on your goal. If you want your play to be as good as it can be, maybe come the beginning of the process and uh, you can rewrite that and you can feed new pages and you can do a lot of work on the play once you start to hear it in the air. Um, otherwise, just go to opening. <laughs> but skip tech. Just skip tech entirely. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I think about now in terms of like trying to figure out when I'm finished with a play mm -hmm. is the, like with Eureka Day having been you know, there's now been three full processes that I've been deeply involved in. Three, you know, three totally distinct mm -hmm. processes and, and a couple other I've been lightly involved in. So like at this point, you know, I can answer any question about the play, like any line that any actor, any, you know, the actor has a question about like what, I mean, I may, it may often better not to answer their question, but like if they had it like that, that I have that level of, understanding of like what the function of every element in the play is and why it's there mm -hmm. um and so thinking that like as close as possible that like that be the bar that you're trying to get to to feel like you're done with a play and and i think it's impossible to get there without a production mm -hmm. uh, like you need to go go through that and go through that process have an audience you know, to, to really understand how your play works, but but that I think only then that the, to be done with it is to know, you know, why completely how it works in that way, mm -hmm. maybe. But also, I mean, as I was saying earlier, it might just be that every play is different and that whatever you think is true, have learned is true for one, doesn't apply to the next one. So you mentioned you have a four month old and you have another child. How old is your other child? She's seven. So you have a seven year old and a four month old. Uh, and so they're both born at very different times in your own career. Uh, yeah. How, how has having these children changed your perspective on theater and your relationship to it um i mean when my daughter was born i both i mean i had no career as a writer and i was i mean i was doing a bunch of things i was adjunct teaching and i was like doing bookkeeping and i was doing whatever but also i was really home with her a lot for the first year of her life because it was which is very clear, like I couldn't earn enough. I wasn't doing things that earned enough money that made sense to pay somebody else to do the childcare. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, maybe it was, maybe it was before she was like quite a year old that we started getting more help. But, um, and I mean, and that, that time was amazing and I, and I loved it. I, and, and on some, honestly, I, I, I think on some level, part of what I loved was like this sense of purpose that relieved me of, my own having to think about um not being happy with career thing or whatever it was like here's this you know when you have a child like like it's very clear like this is the most important thing you should be doing right now is like keeping this child 
alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, uh, yeah, it was just in such a different place than now. Then I, I mean, it, it is very different than with, um, with, you know, my, with my son in that it's much more, um, had to be more of a conscious decision about like, I'm going to take, make space and, and take time off and like, that there are people expecting things from me, potentially commissions mm-hmm. that you're overdue on or, or whatever. Um, so that, yeah, it, it, it feels quite different um, in that sense. Um, although it, neither, I mean, the biggest change is just like going from having zero children to going to having one child is like a complete change in every part of how your life works mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and going from having one child to having two ch- children is like is a big change but it's it's just like now the you know logistics become way more complicated and they're like you know uh, it, 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 it but it's not the same kind of shift so that's also i guess i think that is different and it will continue to be different because of their seven-year age difference they won't be going to the same places at the same time. Right, right. right. Although in my, you know, fingers crossed, it also means like in just a couple of years, we'll have like a built-in baby. <laughs> yeah. Go out, to, go out to see shows. <laughs> um, and it's great. And they have a, I mean, my, well, it's, it's weird to say they have a relationship because I don't know that the four and a half month old really is, uh, you know, how much he intentionally is losing, but, but the, the, my daughter, you know, really is in love with him. So it's really, it's really wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, so this conversation was a long time coming. I think we started talking about it like a year ago, maybe, uh, maybe even longer. I can't maybe. remember because I interviewed Dipika around a year ago, and I think you and I were already talking by then. Um, but I'm curious: is there anything that you? thought we would talk about or that we uh you wanted to talk about that we haven't even touched on yeah well yes i know i i feel like i have been thinking about because as i'm an avid fan of your podcast you know i know you like to ask people about success and so i have been thinking about how i would answer that question yes Um, yes i love it uh, yeah um and i don't I mean, of course, I don't have a good answer beyond that. I think in some ways the definition is unchanged from maybe what it was when I was trying to think of my early 20s, which is like to to be able, like success is to get to keep making work with the people you want to make it with. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And maybe the the change as a kind of older is like at, at a level of support, which feels like people are, you know, not being exploited and like have the resources they need to do their work. Um, like I, I, I still feel like that is the main, that's what feels like success is to get to keep doing it. Um, are you there? Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, I, I mean, 
no in that like i you know there are plays that i would looking for productions for that don't have them yet um but but i feel like it doesn't feel unattainable in a way although mm. also i feel like you i've been around enough as, as have you that you also like people's careers go in waves and like there are um you know i think i think the the, the the field gets bored of people very quickly and it's like excited about the shiny next thing so um i mean i think the people who've been able to sustain careers over many decades are really um you know i mean i think it takes a lot of uh i don't know a lot of a lot of grit and a lot of dedication and, and talent um and some special talent too yeah for sure um yeah and then i guess i mean the other definition of success being just like that you can having you know that 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 you don't have to do that you can support yourself without doing things too far afield from the thing you want to be doing having mm -hmm. had you know a, a, a wide range of shitty jobs you know in my life <laughs> that that certainly feels like one version of success are there shitty jobs behind you uh for the moment but it doesn't you know but that feels tentative always i don't know that it will ever not feel tentative hopefully the shittiest of the jobs <laughs> Shortly after our conversation, Jonathan sent a message to follow up on the subject of success. He said it's like Zeno's paradox, which can be described like this. Suppose I want to cross a room. First, I must walk half the distance. Then I must walk half the remaining distance, then half of the remaining distance, and half of the remaining distance, and so on forever. The result is I can never get to the other side of the room. That is just so right. Thank you, Jonathan Spector, a great writer and a great person. He just announced on his social media that his play This Much I Know will be premiering in London at Hampstead Theatre at the end of this year. It is a fantastic play. Go see it if you can and read all of his plays. They're all great. The music from this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song is High from International Pen Pal. Thank you always to Rob Weiner Kent and American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This episode was produced and edited by me, KJ Jarbo, as the associate producer. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Bloody Noses by Matilda Shulman. This play is such a fantastic punch in the face. I love it, and I'm excited to see what comes next for this great writer. 